All right, well, if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 this morning, you can find this on page 766 in the Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 12. And to bring you up to speed, if you're just just joining us uh, this morning, we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew for several months now. Uh, we've, we've taken uh, a couple of Sundays off, but here we are back in Matthew's gospel. And here, this, this book of the New Testament is explaining to us the good news of Jesus Christ. It's showing us his message, his life, his ministry, the significance of his, of his coming to earth in a human body, of his living a life of perfect obedience in fulfillment of prophecy and fulfillment of the law of God. And it's showing us why he had to come, why he had to die, why he was raised from the dead. And here at this point in, in the gospel of Matthew, we've seen some of Jesus's early ministry, his great miracles and their significance We've seen his wisdom, his authority, that no one, no one ever taught or spoke like this man. No one had the power to heal and to raise the dead and to do mighty works, to cast out demons, to, to still the storm as this man. And it's no wonder because as Matthew's been showing us, this is no mere human being. This is Emmanuel, God with us. But in spite of all of the signs and wonders and undeniably miraculous things, which not even his, his greatest critics could deny, Jesus, in spite of all of that, he still faced opposition. People still hated him. People still rejected him. Though some followed him, many were indifferent. They weren't prepared to submit to Jesus's authority and, and follow where he would call them to go, confessing him as Lord, repenting of their sins as he called them to do. And in fact, the more they saw of Jesus, the more they disliked him. Let that be a lesson to us is, you know, sometimes we might think, man, if, if people could just see Jesus, you know, if they could just see him, you know, walking through, our, through the streets of Springdale, you know, showing the, the love of God and the holiness of God, well, the whole city would just fall at his feet. But sadly, what we see here is that when Jesus walked the streets of, of Galilee and, and Capernaum and these, these ancient cities, they didn't all fall at his feet. Even though he, he loved us as no one has ever loved, people still rejected him. We're going to see a little bit more of why that is this morning. So let's read Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. Follow along as I read Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and, and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, 
how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What we see in this passage is that Jesus's critics were searching for evidence of sin in Jesus. They were trying to, to pin some act of wrongdoing on him to, to accuse him. They were looking for some faults in his character, something that they could, they could publish abroad, something that they could make go viral so they could let everyone know, hey, this Jesus, you know, don't listen to him. They wanted to discredit him so that they could also excuse themselves from taking his teaching seriously. And people do the same today. Critics of Christianity, they, they look for flaws or faults in the Christian faith in order to discredit it, in order to comfort themselves in their unbelief. But the more closely they scrutinize Jesus looking for faults, the more their own sin was exposed. That's what we see here of, of the Pharisees. The more they they hurled accusation after accusation against him. Those accusations would, would boomerang back and, and come back at their own heads. So with the help of God, let's, let's take this account of Jesus and the Sabbath day and these accusations against him. And let's, let's try to understand what's going on. And so we can apply the lessons of this passage to our lives. We'll take this in, in three movements as we work our way through this, this story. First of all, Jesus accused. Secondly, Jesus vindicated or Jesus cleared. And thirdly, Jesus's accusers exposed. So first of all, point number one, Jesus accused. Jesus is accused. So Jesus... Uh, Jesus' disciples here are the ones that are, that are, first of all, like accused of doing wrong. They're the ones that the Pharisees are saying, you know, they're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. 
But really, they're not after Jesus' disciples. They're after Jesus. You know, what the disciples are doing, Jesus is their teacher. He's their leader. They, they answer to him. And so they're looking for some fault, and they think maybe they can find it in the disciples so as to discredit Jesus. That's what we, what we see in verse 10. Their, their real motive becomes clear. They, they asked Jesus in verse 10 so that they might accuse him. So one lesson we can learn right off the bat from this is that as we speak God's truth, we can expect controversy. We can expect opposition in this world. If you're looking to, to just live a, a non-controversial, peaceful life, which, which in one sense we're called to do, we're not to just be out looking for an argument, but... We also have to recognize that as we speak God's truth in a world that is opposed to God's truth, the fight will come to us. And we, brothers and sisters, we need to be ready for that. We don't need to be surprised when that happens, when people try to contradict us, impugn our motives, accuse us of wrong because they don't like what we're saying. Now we see in verse 1, that Jesus and his disciples were, were passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. And this provided the opportunity for the Pharisees to accuse them of wrong. Now, his disciples, they were hungry. They were, they were walking through this field of grain, and they were, they were taking some handfuls of the, of the grain. And from the other parallel accounts, we, we learned that they were kind of rubbing it between their hands, getting the, the husks off so that they could munch on this raw wheat or barley or whatever kind of grain this was. Doesn't sound very appetizing, but they must have been pretty hungry to, to just eat like this. They must have been famished. Now, just to be clear, what they're doing here, they're not stealing. According to the, the law in Deuteronomy 23, According to the laws of Israel, in this agrarian society where there weren't fast food restaurants on every corner, there wasn't McDonald's that you could stop by and grab a, and grab a burger on the way to church, this, what's being done here is not theft. Deuteronomy 23 said that, that if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes as much as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hands, but you shall not put a, a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So you can't go and just, just harvest your neighbor's field and, and like carry a bunch home and put it in your cellar. But you could go through and, and grab a few handfuls as you're passing through if you're hungry. That was allowable. This was part of the law. And so what they were doing was was perfectly lawful. But what about the timing? What about when they were doing it? This seems to be what the Pharisees have issue with. They were doing this on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath day was, uh, Exodus 20 says this of the Sabbath. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, 
your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Sabbath day was a day of rest. It was a holy day. And on top of this uh, command here in the, in the Ten Commandments, what I just read, God gave some other specific instructions to the nation of Israel to regulate how they would keep the Sabbath in order to, to make sure that they were keeping it as a day of sacred rest and worship. In Jeremiah, for example, God reminded Israel uh, to, to not carry loads in and out of the city because evidently, Maybe they weren't like working their job technically on the Sabbath, but they were getting things ready for, for the next day. They, they were getting their merchandise into the city. And so really, they weren't, they weren't setting the day aside as a day of rest and worship. And so God, God had to be real specific. I know some of you parents can relate to this, right? You, you got to be real specific with your kids sometimes. Listen, like I want you to, to take your clothes to the laundry and make sure you put them in the laundry hamper. You got to, sometimes you got to be real specific. And so anyways, God had given them these certain rules for how they were to keep this special day. So was what the disciples doing, breaking God's rules for the Sabbath? Well, no, it wasn't. The Pharisees, the, the religious teachers who are confronting Jesus and his disciples here, what, what the disciples are actually doing is they're breaking their traditions. The Pharisees had made, they, they'd piled rules on top of God's rules, like somebody making a sandwich with, with way too much mustard and mayonnaise. And, and they had actually written down 39 forbidden categories of labor. These were man-made rules that they had constructed, kind of to make fences around the fence in order to, to keep them, supposedly to help them keep the Sabbath. And some of the rules they made was that they said that, that one who, who threshes, removing the kernel from the husk, and one who winnows, threshing grain in the wind, and one who selects the inedible waste from the edible, those were forbidden categories of work. So even if you walked along and you grabbed a, a grain of wheat, you took the husk off, they would say, oh, you're, you're harvesting on the Sabbath day. You can't do that. And this is what the Pharisees were trying to accuse Jesus's followers of doing. They were trying to accuse them of, of reaping and harvesting on the Sabbath, just because they're, they're grabbing a few handfuls to, to munch on as they're walking through the field. So we see that they were breaking the traditions of the Pharisees but as I've already let on, they were not actually breaking God's law. And this brings us to our second movement. We see, we see them accused. We see Jesus accused. But we, we next see Jesus vindicated. Jesus is cleared. He's vindicated of wrongdoing. He defends himself, as we'll see, from the scriptures. He goes to the word of God that evidently the Pharisees had kind of forgotten. Now, Jesus doesn't go to the Bible in order to say, 
hey guys, listen, you know, maybe what we're doing is wrong, but hey, look at, look at King David. I mean, he did what was wrong too. And, and the priests, like, you know, give us a break. You know, what, what God cares about is just, just as long as your heart is in the right place, the particulars don't matter so much. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not what he's doing. His point here is to show that his disciples are guiltless in what they're doing. They're actually not doing anything wrong, even according to the law of the Old Testament. Though they were breaking the man-made rules of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as verse 7 shows, they were ones who were condemning the guiltless. Condemning the guiltless. And what's the reason? They've misunderstood the Bible. They've misunderstood the law of God. Jesus says over and over again, in verse 3, he says, have you not read? And again in verse 5, have you not read? That, that's, that's to say, haven't you read the Bible? Have, do you under, don't you understand? And in verse 7, he says, if you had known what this means, you see that they read it, but they didn't know what it meant. I wonder how often we do the same thing. We, we read the Bible. We, we kind of skim over it in our devotion time. You know, we've got 15 minutes or so, and I've I got to get my chapters in. And so we kind of we kind of read over it. We're familiar with the words, but we don't really know what they mean. We don't, we have, we have a question and we, and I've done this before. I think, well, you know, I'll study that out one of these days. I'll figure out what that means sometime when I, when I have more time. And we end up missing and misunderstanding God's will for us as he reveals it in his word. The more we know of God's word, the more we will know of his will for our lives. Well, something that I'll, I'll point out just in passing is, you know, as we come to a text like this about the Sabbath, um, maybe, maybe something you've wrestled with is, are we as New Testament Christians, should we keep a, a day of rest, a holy Sabbath, as it, as it were? D- does, this, does this command have relevance to us here in the New Testament, now that Christ has come? Maybe that's one of those questions that you've kind of read over in your devotions and you thought, well, I'll study it out one of these days. I confess, I've, I've done that for a while now. And in the past few weeks, I've been trying to dig a little deeper and, and figure out what the scriptures really teach about this, whether, whether Christ would have his church to observe a, a sort of a, a Christian Sabbath or Lord's Day. And this is, again, this is, a, this is something that requires some study because there's passages that would seem to indicate one thing and there's other passages that would seem to indicate another thing. And so, church, our calling is to try to understand God's word. It's not impossible to, to figure out. And as I've studied it, I, I do think that a case can be made from scripture that Sunday called the Lord's Day in the New Testament is is a special holy day as a, that acts as a, as a kind of Sabbath, not exactly like the Old Testament Sabbath, but it acts as a kind of Sabbath day for the church until Christ returns, until we can finally enter the fullness of our rest in Christ. 
I say that recognizing that there's many great Christian folks that would disagree with me on that. This, this is not something that, that uh, if you're wrong on it, you're going to go to hell. Okay. It's not one of those types of issues. I can, you're, you can be a part of this church and disagree with me on this, but I would encourage you study this out. And I don't have time to give a, a full uh, explanation of all the reasons why I think this this morning in this message. And the reason I'm not going to do that this Sunday is because that's really not the main point of this passage. Maybe I'll do a topical message on it sometime soon, but it's not the point of this passage. However, I would point out this, that if, as this, as this text does relate to how we would think about a Christian Sabbath, I think it does hint towards the, the ongoing relevance of a, of, a, of a Christian Sabbath. I think it hints toward that. This would not be the definitive text to go to to prove your point one way or the other. This, this is not what this, this, what this passage is trying to do. However, I think that it, it hints at an ongoing relevance for the Lord's Day or a, a Christian Sabbath because Jesus seems to go into a lot of detail here about what is acceptable to do on the Sabbath. As he says in verse 10 or verse 12, he says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And as Matthew Henry wrote, this explanation of the law plainly shows that it was to be perpetual. The, The exception confirms the rule. The exception confirms the rule, he's saying, Meaning that Jesus saying, you know, here's what's okay to do on the Sabbath, that would seem to imply that, that the Sabbath would still exist. Especially when we consider that, that no comment is made here about it passing away. Jesus sometimes would explain this true significance of, of, say, the temple, but he'd also point out, like, this is soon to pass away. But we find nothing of the sort here. So again, I think, I don't think this is the the clincher, like the proof text that would prove a case for or against the Sabbath. But it is worth considering that Jesus seems to to indicate some kind of ongoing relevance here. Anyways, I'm going to move on from that point. If you have questions about that, feel free to come talk to me after the service. If if you'd like to read more and, and study more on this topic, a couple of resources I would recommend to you. One is a book that my dad wrote called Anticipating God's Rest. It's a pretty easy read. It's a short book that talks about the, making a case for the Lord's Day, for a Christian Sabbath. Another more in-depth book is Getting the Garden Right by Richard Barcelos. So those are two, two resources I would recommend if you wanted to dig deeper into this topic. But again, moving, moving on, making a case for or against an ongoing relevance for the Lord's Day is not the main point of this passage. Jesus goes to the scripture, though, to show that he and his disciples are guiltless. He's showing that what they're doing is is not wrong, even according to Old Testament law. He's not coming along here and saying, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so it it doesn't matter what the law has set up to this point. I can, I'm above the law. I transcend the law. I'm, I'm changing things. Rather, Jesus is declaring that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he is 
And he's the one who made the Sabbath and therefore has the right interpretation of it and therefore could change it if he, if he so desired. But what we see here is, is that he's going back to the Old Testament scriptures and he's showing that, you know, even according to the law, what the disciples are doing is perfectly legitimate. He, he goes to, to David and his men eating the bread of the presence, the, this holy bread that was sitting in the temple of God. And, and the priest gave this bread to David and his men when they were on the run, running from the, for their lives from King Saul. And they were, it, it was a, a, a dangerous situation. They needed a meal. And this bread was only for the priest and his family to eat. But given this, these unique circumstances, the priest gives this bread to David and his men. And I think R.C. Sproul hits the nail on the head when, when he writes that, that Jesus' point here is to tell the Pharisees that mercy is more important than ritual. If, if ritual ever conflicts with mercy, mercy is to have the upper hand. Of course, ritual is not unimportant, but there are occasions when higher necessities must be addressed. Now, David and his men, they weren't eating this consecrated bread just for fun. They weren't just, you know, profaning the, this, you know, the Lord's temple and just being disrespectful. They had a, a legitimate need. And the scriptures don't condemn them in this apparent violation of sanctuary law. Charles Spurgeon said that the law of the Sabbath was never meant to compel starvation of hungry men. So secondly, Jesus, his, his second example from scripture is the priests who worked on the Sabbath day in the temple. And the law itself commanded the priests to offer sacrifices on the day of rest, which would require them getting their hands bloody and preparing the fire and doing all the things, all the temple service. And, and clearly, Jesus points out that the law allowed for this. The priests were, were guiltless for their strenuous labor that they were doing on the Sabbath in the service of God's temple worship. And Jesus tells us in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is speaking of himself there. He's the one who is greater than the temple. He is the one who became flesh. The word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us. It's in him that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, but what, what Jesus is saying here is he's pointing out that if the priests, as they were working hard, in the temple service on the Sabbath day, mind you, in their service to, the, to, the God, to God in the temple, then his disciples were guiltless as they served the greater temple, as they were even seeming to, to work to get a snack to, in, their, in their service to the one who was greater than the temple. He's saying, look, they're working for me, okay? Like, it, it's fine. What they're doing is in my service, in the service of the worship of God. So thirdly, Jesus quotes a, a, a passage from the prophet Hosea. 
He says, if you had known what this means in verse seven, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. This, this verse comes from a passage in the prophet Hosea, where God is confronting the people for their shallow surface level going through the motions religion. And the, the people at that time were, were going to the temple for, to sacrifice and to, to, to sing the praises of God. And in the back of their minds, they were thinking about how they were going to cheat that widow lady once they got out of worship. In, in the back of their minds, they were thinking about that, that inappropriate relationship that they were going to enjoy the rest of that afternoon. And, and, and God was saying, listen, you're, this is we read in, in the book of Isaiah this morning, as, as Daniel read for us earlier, your, your worship is burdensome to me. This, this going through the motions, surface level worship, I, I hate it. It would be, it would be kind of like um, knowing that your spouse was cheating on you and then getting a love letter from that spouse to you. The words would ring hollow. They would almost be an offense that, that this person, as they're in the midst of their sin and unfaithfulness, would try to appease you a little bit with, with these words, these empty words. Let that be a lesson for us. God desires our hearts. He desires true repentance. He desires us to be sincere and genuine before him. But this also shows us that, it again, it shows that, that mercy is, is, has an even higher priority than the, ritual, the rituals of worship. It, it would be kind of like, be kind of like if you're on the way to church and, and there's, there's somebody lying on the side of the road. And maybe, maybe, you were, maybe, you're, maybe you're the one leading worship. Or, or maybe it's me, I'm, and I've got I've to go preach. But there's someone lying on the road over there. I don't know if they need 911 or what. But what will people think if I'm late? I need to, I need to get there. I've got I to gotta keep going. You know, think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Listen, if I did that, what would God think of my worship? He, he, the Lord would have us to prioritize mercy in that, in that situation. Even if it meant that, that, I, that I'm not here to preach and that somebody else, you know, had to come up and preach and I'm helping this person, you know, as they're fighting for their life the rest of the day. The, the Lord, you know, mercy over sacrifice. And so Jesus is defending his disciples here saying, listen, they're hungry. It's okay. Even if they, even if they were seeming to break the Sabbath, which they're really not, mercy triumphs. They, they need to eat. As Spurgeon said, right? It, this, this, this rule was not meant to compel starvation. As Jesus said in the parallel passage, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. All right, well, let's move on to our, our last point. We see, we've seen Jesus vindicated here. but we also see Jesus's accusers exposed. We've seen the Pharisees come and, and they're saying, why are you all breaking the Sabbath, right? And Jesus's basic response is, haven't you read the scriptures? They're perfectly in bounds. 
And how do these Pharisees respond? How do they respond to being schooled by this poor, untrained rabbi from the back country of Galilee? Are they humble enough to admit, you know what, maybe we've missed the point here. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to figure out, maybe we need to go back and reread some of those texts. Unfortunately, no. You notice that they, they don't have an answer for Jesus at the end of verse 8. And then when he comes to their synagogue, they're still out to accuse him. Verse 10 says, they, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And then even after Jesus heals the man, I mean, if, if you needed a sign that maybe, maybe God was behind what this person was doing, you just watch this man with this withered up hand and Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and the man is instantly healed right in front of you. That's pretty remarkable. That, you'd think that at least they would say, you know what? Maybe, he, maybe he's got something here. At least, at least let's go back and reread the scriptures, right? But what do they do? What do they do? When their inconsistency is pointed out, when their hypocrisy is exposed, they get angry. They hate Jesus all the more. And they go out, they go out and take counsel on how to destroy him. Verse 14 says, what an irony that they would, that they would confront Jesus' disciples for getting a snack on the Sabbath, but that they would go out and plot murder on the Sabbath, which that's not right on any day. It shows you where their heart is really at. They don't care about honoring the Lord. All they cared about was their reputation in their community, how they looked to other people. And when Jesus started to, to lift the mask and show that really they were not the holy, righteous people that they were trying to pretend to be, instead of repenting, they sought to kill Jesus. That's how much they idolized their own reputation. Whatever threatens that reputation, I'm going to fight it. People fight for what, what, what matters to them, don't they? The Pharisees' reputation, their, their good name as religious people, as people who are always right, that mattered to them enough that they were willing to fight people for it. What about, what about you, though? What about you and I? How do we respond to other people when we're corrected? When, when somebody comes to us and they start showing how we're wrong about something? Or maybe we're, we're, not, just, we're not just misunderstood something. What if they start showing how we've, we've been in sin? Is our initial response to get defensive? Do we start to fight for what matters to us, which is, is it? being right, being seen as someone who has arrived? Or do we recognize that we haven't arrived, that we don't have it all together, that in fact, we're still learning, that we're still sinners? Sometime read the book of Proverbs and, and look at what it says about our response to reproof, rebuke, correction, the wise, those that, that love the truth, they appreciate it when people correct them. They, they, 
it's something that they recognize the value of being corrected. They realize they've got blind spots. And so when somebody comes to them and says, you know what? I think you're wrong about this, or you're in sin. You need to repent. They, that, that's an honor to them. They, they appreciate that because they say, you know what? Maybe I am. I, I probably do have some things that, I, that, that I'm still wrong about. But it's the wicked, it's the fool, it's the scoffer who hates to be corrected, who runs from rebuke, who takes, it, it takes offense that someone would dare to contradict them. Listen, this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. And when we take offense, when others contradict us or correct us, we are showing ourselves to be very much like the Pharisees. We are showing what we really value. And it's not truth, but it's appearing to be right. It's appearing to have it all together. We would rather look right, even if it's a lie, then really know the truth of God for ourselves. That is idolatry of the most insidious kind. That we would despise the truth of God and care more about our own reputations. And so one way to kind of check ourselves here is, are we experts at recognizing sin in other people? Uh, is a lot of our emotional energy and time throughout the week spent being angry or frustrated with the, the weaknesses, the shortcomings, the sins of people out there, or maybe people in our own family? Are most of our, the, the things we, we say when we speak about other Christians critical and negative, pointing out their errors and their flaws? Those that are closest to God are most angry with their own sin. They most recognize their own faults. How much time do we spend in confession of our own sin, examining our own hearts, saying, oh Lord, search me, try me, know my heart, help me to repent of any wrongdoing versus saying, as as we're reading the Bible, man, I know somebody who would need to, to hear this. Or as you're listening to this sermon, wow, I I can think of some pharisaical hypocrites right now. What about ourselves? Maybe we're that hypocrite this morning. Friends, all of us tend towards this more than we realize. But the good news of the gospel, the good news is that Jesus didn't come merely to expose us in our sin, he came also to do the work of righteousness that we utterly fail to do. We look at God's holy standard and we try to oftentimes make our own traditions or we, or we have selective obedience. You know, maybe I'm not, yeah, maybe I don't forgive that person over there. Maybe I'm a little, maybe I gossip a little bit, but but I'm doing really good over here. And we just focus on that. And, and we focus on that, the, fault, the faults of other people. And Jesus comes along and his word exposes us. And it shows us that if we even do one wrong act, we are transgressors. We're guilty before God. We are under his condemnation. We have no hope 
of being good enough for God. And even as Christians, sometimes we forget that. And we think, yeah, you know, God has forgiven me of past sins, but now, you know, he's helped me a little bit, but now I'm doing pretty good. We pat ourselves on the back. But listen, we need to be coming continually to the word of God, letting it expose us for what we are. And maybe we aren't what we used to be, but we are still very much sinners. We still need his forgiveness today as much as we did 50, 20, 10 years ago, five days ago, yesterday. But for the grace of God, we would be punished forever. And so praise be to God. Jesus, if I was to just sum up this message in a a sentence, Jesus exposes our counterfeit righteousness. Jesus's true righteousness exposes our phony, fake, worthless, counterfeit righteousness. But praise be to God, he came to also work the perfect righteousness for us. He came, as Galatians 4 says, born under the law. And he did that so that he would live the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. He was never hypocritical like we have often been. And he did that to redeem those who were under the curse of the law, us, each one of us in this room who repents and trusts in him. That is the reason he came. That's the reason the Lord of the Sabbath put himself under the Sabbath and every other law of God to obey on our behalf, to do our work for us so that he could invite us to him saying, come unto me, all you who labor, are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. That is why he came, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Lord, remind us of your love. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of our guilt. Not just so that we can feel bad about ourselves, Lord, but but to wean us of every amount of self-confidence so that our trust would be completely in Christ, so that we would rejoice in the finished work of Christ on our behalf, so that we would have a greater experience of the rest that is in him. And so that from a place of acceptance and forgiveness and pardon, we would then go on to live in love to you, doing the good works that you have prepared for us to do for our joy and for your glory. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.